Now, I want to start out this sermon <clears throat> with just a simple statement. I love bread. I love the many different kinds of bread. Baguettes, breadsticks, brioche, cornbread, multigrain bread, bagels, English muffins, soda bread. That's St. Patrick's Day, in case you don't know. There's just something about freshly baked bread that is more desirous than, to me anyway, uh, the most decadent piece of chocolate cake. Just something about it. And ironically, as common as bread is, you might think that it's the number one food eaten globally. But it's not. It's actually beaten by rice, eggs, chicken, and pasta. But if you live in places like Ukraine or Bulgaria or Turkey, then bread is at the top of the list. <clears throat> now, my mama makes some of the best bread that I've ever tasted. However, if there are some of you ladies that want to try to go beyond that, then I would be glad to help you uh, taste that bread. Just make sure you bring butter and jam because you have to have butter and jam to allow the bread to have its full flavor. Now, in 1666, we're told that the Great Fire of London was actually started by a baker. He must have burned the bread really bad. The French Revolution was thought to have been started because the French mobs demanded bread. <clears throat> now, one of the most intriguing types of bread is called the trencher. Sounds like a shovel, and that is too, by the way. But it was a bread plate that was actually used by the wealthy, and they would heap all of their food on it. And then after they would eat all of their food off the top of the bread plate, then they would eat the bread. Or they would donate the bread to the poor. So the bread that was actually eaten off of from them was actually given to the poor. Now, for next year's Thanksgiving, I think that's a really good idea, right? Put the bread on the bottom, all the stuff on the top, roll it all up together. I think it's safe to say that bread has a very, very long history. In fact, uh, some recent archaeological findings in the country of Jordan pushed back the, the date of bread even further. They actually found some ancient bread, bread crumbs in, in some of these fire kilns. I don't know how they know it was ancient bread crumbs. You'd think it would disintegrate by then. Roughly 250 years ago, a scientist by the name of Carl Linnaeus, and you might recognize him. He is the originator of the classification system, you know, the plant kingdom, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, gene. Some of you were asleep in science class, and that's fine. Some of you were awake, and you remember. But he was also a creationist, and he gave all the glory to God for his abilities. And he did some postdoctoral work studies in bread, trying to classify bread. And listen to his words. Listen to what he says. He says, of the many ways humankind has invented to make use of the rich resources of the vegetable kingdom, that of preparing wholesome and tasty bread is without a doubt the most profitable. Bread contains in it the smallest volume, the greatest mass of the nourishing elements obtainable from plants. In all seasons and at all occasions, it gives equally good and useful food. It can be stored for long periods without any loss. It heightens the taste of many of our dishes and even more. It often changes a food which is inedible due to its kind or condition into one which people can consume without any risk and with benefit. <clears throat> 
What makes bread so important and so universal is that it's likely to be the most basic food that supports life. And some form of bread is found in virtually every society. And really, bread can be deconstructed down to just simply water and flour and a heat source. And that's all that's needed. Therefore, to me, it's no coincidence that we find the use of bread mentioned in the Bible. And it was a basic food that was eaten daily and had become a universal synonym for food. In the Gospel of John, Jesus was desperately trying to explain who he was to the people. God had sent him to earth with a mission, and he was dead set on demonstrating his mission so that the people would believe in him. Therefore, what does Jesus do? He uses the most universal symbol of provision, bread, as a, main, as a means to explain to the people his identity. Now think about that for a moment. <clears throat> the wonder of this passage is how Jesus takes something so very simple, bread, and he uses bread to explain who he is, his identity. He doesn't use a complicated metaphor he doesn't use an extended illustration. He doesn't use a parable. He simply just uses bread, something that we <laughs> consume, at least this guy does, on a daily basis. And what I noticed about this whole bread of life discourse here in John chapter 6 is the different responses that people had to Jesus. You know, his miracles and his signs that he's just done in John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, he multiplies bread, <laughs> and the walking on the water, they're definitely causing reactions. And the way that people responded to Jesus is the same way that people respond to Jesus today. But what happens is that seven times in John chapter 6 alone, seven times he says that he is the bread that has come down from heaven, stressing that he was God's divine gift. Seven different times. But not everybody responded to the gift of Jesus in the same way. And even today, not everybody responds to the same gift of Jesus in the same way. So this morning as we look at this text here in John chapter 6, I want to look at these different responses of how the people responded when Jesus says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And, and I want you just to think about the fact that Jesus uses something so simple as, as bread, something that we consume all the time, every day, to explain the very nature of his identity, who he is. So follow with me here in John chapter 6, and we'll start at verse 22. It says, On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which the disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with the disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. And when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. 
The, the first response that we have in this text when people come to this idea of who Jesus is, the first response is the response of seeking. So that's your key word, the response of seeking. This is the first response. And don't you like it how the crowd responds? Where have you been, Jesus? How'd you get over here? We've been looking for you. What's going on here? And now Jesus could have said, hey, look, you know, I just fed you 5,000. Uh, you know, I just fed you bread. I just walked across the lake. Um, but clearly he doesn't want any of the people to follow him because of the miracles that he's doing. And this type, of, this type of response is characteristic of the people that are following Jesus. They're following him kind of in a shallow way. They were more interested in him. They weren't interested in him or the significance of their signs. They were seeking him because he could fill their bellies. That's why. And by the way, even though Jesus knew many were solely concerned with filling their bellies, he still did the miracle anyway because he still knew that they needed, he still had compassion on them. But I think sometimes we uh, overthink, um, or sometimes we have, um, don't really understand this concept of being shallow. And sometimes we think of being shallow as a bad thing. The shallow aspects of life, though, are ordained by God, just like the profound mysteries of life are ordained by God. To be shallow is not a sign of being sinful, as one author says, nor is shallowness an indication there's no depth to your life at all. The ocean, as deep as it is, even has a shore. Even the shallow things of life, such as eating and drinking, walking and talking, are all ordained by God. And he continues, we sometimes refuse to be shallow, not out of our deep devotion to God, but because we wish to impress other people with the fact that we are not shallow. And it's a sure sign of spiritual pride. We must be careful for this is how contempt for others is produced in our lives. And it causes us to be, walk, to be a walking rebuke to other people because they are more shallow than we are. This author says, beware of posing as a profound person because God became a baby. Oswald Chambers is the one who tells us that. I guess the question we should be asking ourselves this morning, why do we seek Jesus? Why are you really here today? Why did you really come to church today? You've got a crowd here who's following Jesus, who's just seeking Jesus because of what he can do for them, just because he has this fantastic ability to provide for them, to fill their bellies, to meet all of their needs. But Jesus takes their thinking and pushes it deeper. Obviously, they're seeking him for the wrong reasons. Jesus says that. He doesn't pull any punches. He says, look, the only reason you're following me is because you want to fill your bellies. That's the only reason. They should have been following him or seeking him because of the signs and because of the miracles he had been doing. And the question is the same for us today. You know, do we seek Jesus because he can answer a prayer request? Do we seek him so that he can make us more compassionate to others? Do we seek him so he can help us raise our kids right? Do we seek him because our family does? Or do we seek him because it's the smart thing to do? Or do we truly seek him because of who he is? And we know that who he is, he can provide any of those things. What is Jesus saying? Look at verse 27. He says, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his approval on him. 
Jesus tells the crowd, he says, because of who I am, I'm authorized by the Father to give eternal life to those who believe in me. Jesus says that's the type of food that you ought to be seeking for. That's the kind of thing that I'm here to give you. Uh, Food that doesn't go moldy or doesn't go bad. Food that's not stolen by thieves. It's the food that comes down from heaven. That's the type of thing that we should be seeking. But when the people hear this word labor, they assume that Jesus is talking about some type of physical work. And that will lead us to the next response as well. But I want you just to consider, why are we truly seeking Jesus? That's the first response. The second response from the people is this idea of working. Working. Look at what verse 28 says. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? So they obviously think that there must be something they must have to do to get this bread, right? There must be something they have to do to gain this bread. Um, This reflects the Jewish thinking that the law is the bread that God gives, meaning that the works of the law is what we must do to gain this eternal bread. And, and, And Christ doesn't disagree that something must be done to receive this life-giving bread. He clarifies it's not the works of the law. The only action that must be done is believing in him. Because look at what verse 29 says, the very next verse. And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. This is the only work that you need to do, that you believe in him, in God, whom he sent. Believe in me, whom God sent. You know, I don't know what it is within the fallen nature of mankind, humanity, that makes working for eternal life more attractive than receiving a gift. Something within our nature, and I'm not sure what it is, but something within the nature of mankind, it feels like working for is easier than receiving the gift. And I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just called pride. When a person puts their faith in Jesus, they bow the knee in humility, realizing they can do nothing to achieve salvation. It's a single work of Christ on our behalf, a once and for all sacrifice that purchased our redemption. Therefore, it's a single act of belief in him wherein we receive his gift. It's, I think, a prideful thing. Isn't it hard to receive a gift sometimes, especially when the gift is so very valuable and you know the person giving the gift has nothing and yet they still give it anyway? Do you want to reject the gift or do you want to receive the gift? And sometimes I think that we have just this this mentality, just like the Jews here did, this mentality that it, it can't be this simple. Receiving the gift accepting Jesus, believing in him. It, salvation can't be so simple. But, but the, <laughs> the simple fact of the matter is, is that it is. And, and constantly throughout this passage, Jesus says, it's really easy. This is the way. Well, they don't like it. 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 Certainly it's gotta be something because they think they have this mentality that working to achieve something makes it more valuable. A work-oriented Jew always sought acceptability of God with God through work, isn't getting the point. In fact, 
I like what they do. And they, they further probe into Jesus' credibility. They said, what work must we do? And look at verse 30. Therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform? In other words, what work will you do that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? I mean, <laughs> you know, you, you, you just got to listen to, put yourself in Jesus' shoes here. Seriously, I can hear Jesus saying, you're going to ask me that? What work am I going to do? What do you think I've been doing? I just fed 5,000 people, not to mention all the women and children that were there too. I just walked across the surface of the lake, and now you want more signs? Show us something else. Show us something more powerful. And look what they say in verse 31. Our fathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Hey, miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, the bread from heaven. You know, that's, that's just old stuff. We've heard of it before. You know, Moses did that. And, of course, Jesus says, well, what version of the Old Testament are you reading from? Because my version of the Old Testament says that Moses had nothing to do with that whining wilderness wandering generation. It's a lot of W's. Moses had nothing to do with it. God had everything to do with it. And then what Jesus does is he connects these two events. Look at verse 32. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. These two verses, and I say this, um, I don't say this casually, but these two verses might be the most important verses in this entire chapter because of what they do. The Father was active in the past, giving the nation bread. Now the same Father today offers you, he's talking to the people, true bread from heaven. And the statement is important because it connects the continuing activity of God in the person of Jesus. God's gift of eternal bread has come down from heaven in the person of Jesus, yet the people still don't believe it. They seem to be wanting some type of new physical or magical bread that, that does not spoil. And as much as I love bread, I, I hate it when the bread spoils. You just feel like, man, I didn't eat it fast enough, you know? I should have eaten it more. You know, a wasteful thing. It's like when you go in the refrigerator and you have to throw stuff out. You're like, oh, man, I wish I could have eaten. I shouldn't have gone. I shouldn't have done this. I should have stayed home and should have just eaten what was in the fridge. You just hate to be wasteful. The same way you think about bread. But I wonder what Jesus must have been feeling. Because he's doing all these signs and miracles, and yet they still just don't get it. Did he walk around with his head in his hands? Was he frustrated? Was his heart deeply hurt every time he was rejected? The people couldn't see the signs and they were right in front of their faces. And yet today we're no better. <laughs> you know, have we not learned that Jesus is the bread he is everything we'll need in this life and the life to come. And we still tend to put other things before him. We still find other things to put before him. You know, one of the breads that I like, I brought tonight, 
or this morning, it's not evening. And I don't get this bread a lot, but it's actually a Jewish bread. Um, it's called challah bread. And challah bread is famous because of the braids that the bread has. Um, this is great for uh, making all kinds of things. Um, French toast especially, really good. Um, this is called challah bread, and this is the Jewish bread. Okay, this is the bread that the Jews use every Shabbat or every Sabbath. And they use this, and, and, and the braids have significance. But every Shabbat and on special festival days, the Jews celebrate with this kind of bread. And this bread, the point of it is it has many connections to manna. Right? Okay. It's symbolic because the blessing is said over two loaves of bread, symbolizing the two portions of manna that was distributed on Fridays to the children of Israel during the exodus from Egypt. Remember, they couldn't collect manna on the Sabbath because it would spoil. See, even back then, they were worried about bread spoiling. And the bread is covered on a table by a, direct, by a decorative napkin, which represents the dew that collected on the manna. Poppy seeds, sesame seeds are sprinkled on the bread to symbolize that the Bread fell from heaven. And every Sabbath day, the Jewish people remember the provision of bread in the wilderness. Every Sabbath day. But Jesus, as the bread of life, is nowhere to be found in their observance. Remember, they're still looking for the Messiah. If you've ever been to a Seder supper, and at the very end, they open the door because they're looking for the coming of the Messiah. Maybe we need to start witnessing to our Jewish friends by means of bread. Got a deal, right? Jesus is the halal. Remember, Jesus never said that he has the bread of life, but that he was the bread of life. And three times in this passage, three times Jesus says that he is the bread of, heaven, or, or, or the bread of life. And every time the words just sail over their heads. How close are the Jewish people? I mean, it's right there in their hands. They use the very symbolism to represent things. And yet, they just completely miss it. And I say the same thing is true for us, is that we know that Jesus is the bread. We know that he has provision for any need that we might have. And he's right there in front of us, yet so many times we just completely miss him. The people respond to Jesus by working. Not a good response. A third response is they complain. You know that complaining would be a part of the passage here, right? Look at verse 41. It says, the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? There's always a complainer, somebody who doesn't like stuff, Right? They didn't like the one thing about Jesus. I am the bread that came down from heaven. And ironically, the wandering wilderness generation who received the manna from heaven, they complained, they whined, they were also grumblers. But they expect that, right? I mean, manna every day, 40 years, except for Sabbath day. So what's that, 15,000 days? Same thing. Surely you're going to complain once or twice, right? Same thing. I mean, there's only so much things you can do with manna, right? 
can bake it, broil it, fry it, pan sear it, uh, eat it raw maybe, fresh. You know it was organic, all natural, and preservative free, right? Because it came from above. But can you imagine that? 15,000 days, same thing, every day, every day. I don't know if there's a food that I could eat. Bread might be one of them. Every single day for 15,000 days. So it makes sense that they complain. But from a logical point of view, if we place ourselves into this text here, we'd be saying the same things. How can Jesus... We saw him grow up. How can he come down from heaven? That doesn't make any sense. They couldn't wrap their minds around it because they were obviously still thinking in the physical sense. They hadn't stepped over into the spiritual side of things. This is not the picture of the Messiah that we have in our heads, they said. This is not the one that the religious leaders taught about the Messiah who would come. They complained that Jesus was not who we want him to be. He doesn't look like it. But, but Jesus pushes more into this bread of life imagery. And like it or not, he says, I am the one that's sent from heaven. He repeats the manna miracle. He says, the manna will not save you. The miracle itself didn't save the wilderness generation. I'm the bread of life. I'm the one who can save you. Look at what he says in verse 48. He says, I am the bread of life. He says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. <laughs> this is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my body or my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Did you catch that last verse? Jesus says metaphorically that his bread is the body, which he gives as a sacrifice for the world. The purpose here of Jesus' incarnation, him coming as a baby in Bethlehem is clear. In order for Jesus to sacrifice himself for the world, he had to come to the world in human form. In Jesus' words, however, we also find the imagery of the Lord's Supper. You know, the bread symbolically represents the body, doesn't it? There are obviously people who are complaining. But then that leads us to the fourth response, that of arguing. They argue. So complaining leads to arguing. By now, you'd think that the crowds were understanding that Jesus was talking metaphorically. You know, I don't expect you to eat my body. That's cannibalism. That doesn't make any sense. They, they were still trying to wrestle with this. You'd think by now they knew that Jesus was to be speaking metaphorically. But look what verse 52 says. It says they were quarreling. They were arguing. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? This doesn't make any sense to us. You know, Nicodemus back in John chapter 3, three chapters earlier, had the same problem trying to comprehend the new birth. And you might remember the story. How can I be born again in my mother's womb? How, it just doesn't make any sense because Nicodemus was thinking in the physical realm and not in the spiritual realm. How can this man give us flesh to eat, Jesus says in verse 52. Unless you have spiritual perception, then spiritual truth makes no sense whatsoever, right? Instead of arguing about something they couldn't wrap their minds around, they needed to stop and they needed to reflect on the words of Jesus. You know, there are passages in Scripture that are hard to understand. There are passages that we just can't understand because our minds are finite. 
but that doesn't mean that we should get upset, frustrated, angry. It should rather cause us to dive deeper into the Scripture, to study it more and more. You know, we're in the Advent season, a time when we reflect on the first coming of Christ into the world. And to me, the mystery of the Incarnation is something that I still have trouble wrapping my head around. And I'm comfortable with the thought that I may never be able to fully understand it. It drives me into deeper study of God's word. It drives me into deeper relationship to the Father. I want you to think about this because people, they blow right by the incarnation and they go to the resurrection. And they say, I don't understand the resurrection. How could Jesus raise again? How could that happen? And they get stuck there. And they go right past the incarnation at the very beginning. I'm sorry, I haven't even got past first base here. <laughs> I haven't got past the first part, the incarnation yet. How could Jesus become a man? Resurrection, you know, Old Testament, some of the prophets resurrected people. That's a little more believable. But God becoming man, the incarnation, I mean, that's the mystery that we ought to be looking into. But the crowd that Jesus was speaking to, he doesn't seem to have any desire to reflect on the words of Jesus. They just want a quick internet-like, uh, uh, YouTube-like answer for their problems, right? A quick internet-like fix might solve some of life's physical problems, but Jesus came to solve man's biggest problem. You know, you look at some of those YouTube videos, and I've watched my share of the YouTube videos, and I need to know how to do something to fix something. Hey, there's 50 different ways to, <laughs> to fix it. Part of, the, part of the problem is trying to choose which way is, is the sane way to fix the problem. But they're looking for just a, a quick fix. What do we need to do to get this eternal life? What do we need to work? How, how do we need to act? What do we need to say? What do we need to do? It's all do, do, do. What, what do we need? And once again, Jesus refers back to the wilderness generation. Look at verses 57 and 58. It says, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which, here it is again, came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. Moses was indeed a great man. It was through him that the people were sustained in the wilderness. But Jesus is far greater. For what he provides satisfies through all of eternity. And ironically, this whole conversation, this whole bread of life discourse that Jesus had took place in a synagogue, took place in Capernaum. And what better place to promise eternal life than where people were gathered to seek the very thing of working, their religious works. They were gathered together to the synagogue to do their works so they could attain salvation. What, what, I mean, and Jesus says, no, there's no works. The only work is that you have to accept my free gift of me. That's it. 2,000 years of history, 2,000 years of tradition, and you say, all we gotta do is believe? All we gotta do is put our faith in you? That's too easy. Something's not right. And sometimes we have a hard time today when we explain to people that the free gift of salvation is in Jesus because they feel like we do too. Ain't nothing free in this world. It can't be. That's too good to be true. What do you mean I can have eternal life? Just by believing, putting my faith in Jesus, that's too easy. That's too simple. 
That's too basic. Surely I got to do something. All the rest of the world religions want me to do something, want me to work some way to get a chance at heaven. And now you're telling me all I got to do is just accept this free gift? No wonder they had such a hard time with it. You know, if we put ourselves back in the story of John chapter 6, we'd probably be acting the same way. That's unfortunate, but that's just human nature. The fifth response is that they reject him. Look at verse 61. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? (laughs) Being offended at someone's words, who has ever heard of something silly like that? (laughs) I'm being sarcastic, of course, because we live in the United States of the offended, right? Some who were following Jesus were doing so because they wanted the physical benefits he could provide. They weren't concerned with spiritual matters. They preferred the physical realm over the spiritual realm. Others weren't able to see beyond his true identity. Others probably couldn't accept his claim to be greater than Moses. Still others probably found his speech particularly offensive, especially in eating his body. And in spite of the importance of spiritual life, it's sad that some of his disciples still rejected him. Look down at verse 64. There are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, or excuse me, who did not believe and who would betray him. There were still some of his followers who didn't believe. And see, here's the point. You can follow Jesus all you want, but until you believe in him, not in his works, not in his miracles, but in him, the teaching about the importance of spiritual things will go one in, in one ear and then go out the other. Remember, pastor's been saying the natural man, he doesn't understand the things of the spiritual man. And so is the case here. And furthermore, because of what Jesus said, there are some, at this point, it's kind of like a climax in the book of John. There are some who stop following Jesus because of this. Look at verse 66 says, from that time, John 6, 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Because of what he said, because they couldn't get it, they couldn't understand it, they came to the conclusion, I I, I can't do this anymore. I can't. This this whole thing, this is is it. Uh, You know, I've been with Jesus for a while here and following him and seeing all these miracles. He's done great things. We thought he was the king. But now this whole talk about the bread, the body, the sacrifice, I just don't know. Uh, I think it's time for us to, to leave and go back. And how sad. They were so close. They were so close. They were, they, were, they were so close. They rejected him. And in frustration, it would seem that Jesus turns to the 12. And look what he says. Verse 60, uh, we'll, we'll read verse 66 and verse 67. It says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the 12, Do you also want to go away? kind of out of frustration. You guys going to forsake me as well? I mean, everybody else has. You might as well. And that leads us to the sixth response, which this is the best response of all, the response of believing. That's the response. This is the good one. Now, Peter, who normally makes me nervous when he starts to speak, 
Doesn't it make you nervous a little bit when he starts to speak and say something? You think, mm. Because you know he'd say the same thing that would come out of your mouth. That's why it makes you nervous, right? He steps up to the plate, and boy, he hits the ball out of the ballpark. Listen to his words, verse 68. But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, meaning the chosen one, the Messiah, and the Son of the living God. Peter just listened to the entire bread of life discourse of Jesus here. And even though he didn't understand, we don't know what he did and didn't understand. But he may have not understood all of it. But he knows, he believes in Jesus. Peter says, you are the bread of life. You have the words to eternal life. Why would we seek it from any other source? Not only do we believe that you have the words to eternal life, he says, but we also believe that you are the Christ, the anointed one. In other words, Jesus was their only hope. Peter steps up. <laughs> you have the words to eternal life. Why would we go anywhere else? Why can't we be like that with Peter? <laughs> Why can't we be like that in our lives? Well, Jesus, I don't want anything else. You're the bread. You're going to provide everything that I have. You've got the words to eternal life. You've got all the answers to all of my problems. You're the expert in every matter. You know exactly how I feel. You've been through it all. But I still like getting a second opinion. So many times here in this text, so many times, he is the bread of life, the one who's come down from heaven. He is the one who has eternal life. And you see this phrase, come down from heaven, come down from heaven. He's saying, I am the manna, <laughs> okay? I am the manna, you know, the one that came down from heaven. Just as God provided you manna in the wilderness, so I now am coming down from heaven and providing you more than just physical life, but I'm providing you with eternal life. Come down from heaven. What kind of reasons do we have for stop following Jesus? There's none that we can give. We can say it's hard, there's suffering involved, it's not easy. Those are just all excuses. Peter steps up here to the plate. And the, the, the point is here that I think we spend our lives trying to find satisfaction from the moldy bread that the world serves up and dresses up. Whereas we need to find satisfaction in the living bread. It freely gives to those who believe in him. And, and you know, the lesson of the bread is really a lesson in idolatry is what it is. Because Jesus is the provider of everything that we need. And yet we go after the moldy bread that the world serves up and dresses up and we think it's somehow better. How naive and how foolish, especially for us believers in Christ who know better. And when we go after that moldy bread, we act just like the wandering, whining, wilderness generation. 
And for 40 years, every single day, God provided manna for his people. Every single day, the same thing. Yeah, I would complain too. Every single day, the same thing. Every single day, the same thing. Every single day, the same thing. You'd think that going out one day, you'd expect something else. Going out the next day, you expect every day the same thing. It must have been really, really good. The point is, though, that God provided for his people every step of the way. Every single step. You know, when Jesus, um, when he was being tempted by Satan, do you remember what he says? He says, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God or out of the mouth of God. And that quotation actually comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 2. And let this be a lesson to you to search out those Old Testament references when they're quoted. Go back and read them and find the context because I want you to listen to what it says in this Deuteronomy passage, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. It says, And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he, this is the purpose statement, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And after Israel conquers the promised land, after God has been providing every single day for Israel for 40 years in the wilderness, they spend a few years conquering the promised land, and then they go right back to eating the moldy bread that the Canaanites are serving when they get in the promised land. They do the exact same thing. And if we're not careful, we do the same thing. So I just want you to consider as we close this morning, just simply consider this, how Jesus used something so simple, so uh, insignificant, maybe we might say. Bread is so common, except when there's threat of a snowstorm. Bread is so common, right? I mean, it's used every day for everything. And Jesus takes something that's so very common, Something that's a synonym with sustains life. And he says, I am this. I am this common thing. He doesn't use a complex, hard to understand, complicated metaphor or, or parable or anything like that. He just, he just simply says, I'm bread. And he takes the bread and he explains his identity, who he is, just from simple bread. And, and so when I look at this passage the bread which comes down from heaven, the bread which comes down from heaven, the bread which comes down from heaven, the bread seven different times. It's just a reminder of how something so simple by Jesus was used in such a divine way. Not only to say that today he's our provider of everything, but that even in this context for the nation of Israel, that he was the provider for them. Just as he was the provider for them in the Old Testament, he's also the provider for them in the New Testament. And he's also the provider for us every step of the way. But so many times we act and we respond to Jesus being the bread in the ways in which the text told us. We argue about it. 
Sometimes we don't like it. We reject it. Sometimes we complain about it. Sometimes we, we, we seek it. And sometimes we're working for it. When Jesus says, all you have to do is just to accept it. I want to provide for you today. I want to meet your need today. But you have to let me do it. And sometimes that requires waiting just a little bit longer for God to respond. Because sometimes he doesn't respond as quick as we might want him to. But if we give him just a minute, just a little time, you'd be surprised what God can do, especially when we seek him as our bread of life, because he wants to provide for us. He's promised to provide for us. But friends, we've got to let him provide for us. Something so simple as bread. Jesus used it in such a divine way to explain not only his identity, but for the fact that he wants to provide for us every single day.